Submission is hard. Like many of you, my growing up years were shaped, even in ways I didn't know about at the time, by things like the Civil Rights Movement, the Vietnam War, and Watergate. I grew up in a world that trusted authorities less and less. We've seen liars, cheats, hypocrites, and swindlers everywhere from politicians to preachers to parents. Those of us born out of the protest generation were weaned on slogans like fight the power, stick it to the man, and question authority. We're seeing now what you might call the tail whip of that today. As a society, we no longer see submission to authority as a virtuous thing. We may not question authority the way we used to so, so much as we simply just don't acknowledge that it exists. We tend to see any claim to authority as arrogant, presumptuous, and overbearing. We too often conflate the ideas of authority and authoritarianism. We have allowed the abuses that we have observed to become normative in our minds so that we see anything that reminds us of that, of those abuses that we've seen as somehow innately wicked. And we flee from the idea of submission. Well, in Ephesians 5, 21 to 6, 9, Paul wades right into the very mindset that we're talking about here to shatter these notions as he addresses the Ephesian church. The core reality, <clears throat> excuse me, the core reality that he brings out here is that the right relationship of authority and submission is essential to the Christian life. The right relationship of authority and submission is essential to the Christian life. Now, as Paul addresses the Ephesian church here, everything he is calling them to stands in stark contrast with the unbelieving world and with their own natural tendencies. That's been the focus that he's brought out really from the beginning. This is who you were and this is who you are. This is what those who are dead in sin look like and live like, but you're not them anymore, so you don't live that way. Because of who you are in Christ, you need to walk worthy of the calling you've received. You used to be darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. The Lord sets the stark contrast. And he emphasizes that contrast over and over in overt and subtle ways. And one of the places that we see this contrast jump out, in addition to the immorality that he's already addressed, is here in this idea of submission. Now, in case you think that's just a, a new thing, that people back then naturally submitted to authority, rebellion is in us. It's innate to our sin nature. Every single one of us wants our way, and we are disinclined to listen to anyone who wants to cause us to leave our way, to go another way. Therefore, we rebel against authority. 
You may remember how that went back in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. God said, do this, don't do that. We said, hmm, I think I want to do that. I want to do my thing. And we listened to the voice of the interloper rather than trusting the voice of the Father. We went away from God's word and it brought eternal consequences. Ever since then, each one of us, when we follow our own way, our own natural desires, those desires are tainted. They are stained by sin. They are depraved. So that we cannot see rightly, we cannot think and reason rightly, apart from being redeemed and having our entire frame of reference shifted by being reborn in Christ and receiving His Holy Spirit to guide us. He's calling them to something that is not natural. That's why He's writing it down. Have you noticed, if it's natural, you don't have to tell somebody to do it, right? I don't have to tell you if you're cold to put on a sweater because you're going to do something if you're cold. If you're Hot, some of you guys are cold right now. You think that air conditioner is hitting you in the back of the neck? All right, so you're thinking, man, I wish I had a sweater right now. Others of you are not sitting in that same spot. You're thinking, man, could they turn the air conditioner a little colder in here? The reality is, if it's natural, nobody needs to instruct you. There is a reason that coaches spend so much time trying to teach kids how to play the sports they play correctly. Because it's not all natural. Very few of us do things right naturally. We have to learn how. When I first took my oldest son uh, to college to meet with the baseball coach, we also met with the track coach. And I was just astonished to hear the track coach talk about how we needed to learn how to run. Learn how to run? Don't you just naturally run? Yeah, but you run wrong. We need to teach you to do what your body is designed to do so that it does it better. Submission is what we're designed for, but it is not natural to us. As we look at the, the text that we're going to focus on today, we're, we're in this idea of Christian submission as an overview today. And then over the next three weeks, we'll look at the rest of this extended passage where Paul gets into details about parenting and he gets into uh, details about marriage and he gets into details about slaves and masters or, or vocation. And for some of you, the moment I even mention slaves, like, okay, we got a problem here. Why, why doesn't the Bible condemn this? Why doesn't Paul say, masters, get rid of your slaves? We'll get to that in a few weeks. For today, just ride with me. We're going to focus in on verse 21 as the framework for what we will see in the rest. In, in Ephesians 5, 21, which is also our memory verse for today, Paul says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This will be the framework of, of the sermon as we walk through this. Hopefully we'll be able to uh, understand it a little bit better. First, let's talk about <clears throat> his imperative here. Submit. 
Now, uh, literally, and in, in uh, many of your translations, it, it may say submitting. Coming out of the previous verses, Paul is saying, do these things, give thanks, have these attitudes, have these behaviors, submitting to one another. It is an implied imperative here. And so the uh, translators of the NIV and some others uh, shift it, which makes for a natural break here. I think it's appropriate. I don't know that it's the way to translate it. Because this verse, verse 21, is the bridge between everything that he said prior and everything that he says after. For the sake of, of working through this in a sermon series, it works really well for me to stop at 20 and pick up at 21. Because 21 moves us forward. But I don't think that's the intent as you look at how he writes it. There is a connection to both. As you do these things, as you live this life, part of that is this attitude of submission to one another out of reverence for God. If you have an older translation, uh, King James, New King James, it may say in fear of God. Some of the, uh, some of the more recent Greek texts, which are used in the older translations of the Bible before we discovered some other ones, said God instead of Christ. Most of the older, uh, more reliable manuscripts said out of fear, out of reverence for Christ. doesn't change the meaning a bit, but as you see those differences, it's good to understand why. <clears throat> what are we talking about? He says, submit. Understand this. God has built authority and submission into all of creation. God has built authority and submission into all of creation. You can see it as he begins his creation in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. He gives authority to humankind. As he gives them the task of being fruitful, multiplying, filling the earth, he also gives them the task of ruling, having dominion over the earth as his stewards of his creation. There is an authority built in there, but it's bigger than that. Observe the natural order. From atoms to galaxies, God has built a picture of authority and submission. In an atom, you have a nucleus, which have a, has its own tiny little gravitational pull. And around this nucleus, these electrons orbit. They submit to the pull and control of the nucleus. We see this in solar systems, in galaxies, in the cells of your body. There is an orderliness. And everything has to play its role. I would suggest to you that there is not a speck of dust in the universe that is not in some sense under this design of authority and submission, if in no other way than by being exactly where God has called it to be. Submission is built in. Authority is built in. This aspect is part of the creation order. It's declaring 
the glory of God. In Psalm 19, we read that the skies, the heavens, declare the glory of God. And the picture that we have in the first half of Psalm 19 is the natural created order crying out that God is glorious. And we see in this declaration, as God reveals himself to us through nature, that over and over and over again, he builds into his creative design pictures of himself. And the intrinsic design throughout nature of authority and submission gives us a picture of God's sovereignty and his relationship to his people. God has built authority and submission into all of creation. Secondly, notice this. Submission is inextricably tied to humility and obedience. Submission is inextricably tied to humility and obedience. Now, you might say submission is the bridge between those two, the bridge between humility and obedience. These three ideas are discussed almost interchangeably throughout the Bible. And they are perfectly displayed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Notice this. Humility is a mindset. Submission is a decision. And obedience is an action. Humility is a mindset. Submission is a decision. And obedience is an action. Turn, if you would, to, Ephes- or to Philippians chapter 2. It's just probably the next page or so from where you are in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter, twice I've said that, Philippians chapter 2, Paul is going to take us someplace that gives us a picture here of the connection between the mindset of humility, the attitude of humility, the decision then to subjugate myself to a rightful authority, and the resulting action of obedience. He's calling them to right behavior the same way he does here in Ephesians 5. But notice what he says in Philippians chapter 2, starting with verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. There's a picture of unity there that is that is ubiquitous in the letter to the Ephesians, here he's saying this to the Philippian church as well, being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, having that humble attitude, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Notice verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. You could take mindset out and put attitude in. It's the same idea. Then he describes what Jesus' mindset, what his attitude is like. You'll see the attitude of humility leading to the choice to humble himself as a servant. 
and then what he does in response to that. <clears throat> Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, verse 6, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage or something to be grasped, something to be clung to. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's a picture here of this connection between humility and obedience and the decision, the choice to submit is the bridge between them. Humility is a mindset. Submission is a decision. Obedience is an action. When God calls us in this verse to submit, it's, it's a function of his creative design. He's built authority and submission into all of creation, and it is inextricably tied to humility and obedience. The right relationship of authority and submission is essential to the Christian life because it is God's design to reveal his own nature and relationship to his creation. I'm going to read that again in case you want to write that down in the space in your program. The right relationship of authority and submission is essential to the Christian life because it is God's design to reveal his own nature and relationship to his creation. He calls us to submit. He calls us to submit to one another. Let's talk about that. To one another. The glory of God is displayed in the unity of the church. I'll say it again. The glory of God is displayed in the unity of the church. <clears throat> now we've seen this uh, several times in the first three, even in chapter 4 uh, of the book of Ephesians. But look at Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21, specifically 21. But I'll start with 20 because that's the beginning of the thought. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory. What's that next phrase? Read it with me. In the church. That wasn't loud enough. I heard my, only myself. Let's say it again. In the church. To him be glory. There we go. In the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. As Paul is talking to the Ephesian church about this idea of the wholeness, the shalom, the peace and harmony that is brought into the believers, into the people of God by the Son of God laying down His life for us to bring us from death to life. What Jesus does in tearing down all the divisions between us to make us right with God is in making us right with God, He first humbles us. He humbled himself to do this work, to become a servant, 
to be obedient even to the point of death on a cross. But he had to humble us with the bad news of reality. How many of you recognize that what we're talking about in Christianity is not a set of religious beliefs that we adhere to and we all nod our heads and we check it off a, a list that we get from church. We are acknowledging that there is one truth, one reality. It's not religion. We often say it's relationship. I would say it's not even that. It's reality. We need to get on board with what God has done and is doing. And until we begin to think of the truth of God's word, not just as something that I can believe or not believe, but as ultimate foundational reality, we will never be able to view it with the same confidence as those who oppose it because they believe it's not reality. We need to be able to recognize the reality of the truth of God and apply that in our everyday living, recognizing that what seems real in the world around us isn't what is real. We need to be able to see reality. <clears throat> the glory of God is displayed in the unity of the church. <clears throat> Pardon me. <clears throat> As Jesus brings us to himself, the first thing that he says in the book of Mark when he first starts to speak is repent. The kingdom is at hand. For those of you who think that God just doesn't care about sin, because Jesus came and God is love, it's all good, do whatever you want. You can live willy-nilly, if you will. I had to throw willy-nilly in there somewhere. That's the opposite of the message of Christ. Christ's message is, you are all going to die and go to hell unless you turn. We don't like to talk about that part of it much. But apart from that reality, the offer of his death in our place makes no sense and has no power. Why would I turn and have faith in this ancient teacher who died supposedly for me if there isn't something more than my experience? If there isn't something from which I need to be saved, why would I cry out to him for salvation? So his first message is repent. The demonstration of his character and the nature of his call is take my yoke upon you. It's light. It's easy. I am gentle, humble. This is the picture we have of him. We can't take just part of Jesus. We're not left that option. We have to take him as he is the lion, and the lamb. Because God has given us Christ, He has leveled the playing field for all of us. The ground is level, as they say, at the foot of the cross. Because I have to come on my knees. There is no other way. 
until I humble myself and recognize that I'm dead in my sin. I have nothing to offer God. I can't be good enough. None of my strength, none of my ability, none of my background is going to help me. I don't get a pass, and I don't get extra credit. None of that helps. It's only coming to Him, seeking His mercy, receiving His glorious grace that brings me to real, meaningful, lasting life. Because that is our nature, that we all start out dead, brought to life by God's grace, we all come to the cross on our knees, we need to recognize that the unity of the church flows from our position in Christ. All of us separated from God, but in Christ, all of us united to Him. We are now at peace with God because of what Jesus did on the cross. And if I am united to Christ and you are united to Christ, then we are united to one another. This is a major emphasis of the letter. <clears throat> Excuse me. Ephesians, as much as any letter in the New Testament, emphasizes the role of the body, the role of the church. <clears throat> we are not spiritual mavericks doing whatever we feel like doing. And this is why church membership is such an important aspect of biblical discipleship. Every picture of the church, every picture of believers that we have, involves a committed relationship to a formal, organized local church under specific spiritual authority. Check it out. Try to find an example where it's not. Even in the very beginning in Acts 2, where things are organic and they're beginning and there's clearly no hierarchy yet, they are still gathered under the authority of the twelve apostles who are under the authority, the headship of Christ. And immediately upon the birth of the church in Acts 2, we begin to see the development of local households of faith, local churches. Every instruction we have involves, at its very core, the togetherness of the body, the commitment to one another. It is necessary, if I'm to be a disciple of Christ, to stop dating the church, especially to stop playing the field, and to marry the body of Christ. Apart from this local, formal, organized, under a specific spiritual authority church, we cannot fully carry out the commands of Scripture for the church. We cannot carry out the commanded discipline and purity within the church. We cannot carry out the one another's. We cannot carry one another's burdens in the same way, apart from the function of the church. If we are reading the Bible, you know, this book, that we understand to be God-breathed, useful, and authoritative, if we're actually reading this book, then we can no longer buy the deceptive statement that so many have claimed that, you know, I love Jesus, I just don't like Christians. I, 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 really, 
I'm a Christian, but I don't really believe in organized religion, which I suppose leaves you with disorganized religion, and that doesn't seem better to me. We can no longer buy the deception that I can be a Lone Ranger Christian and go out and do my own thing. I have to recognize that just as in every other aspect of creation, as in every other social framework, every society, from families to nations, there is a system of authority and submission. It's built in. It's necessary. It's even life-giving. The glory of God is displayed in the unity of the church. We submit to one another, and there is an attitude of mutual submission. But notice this. Mutual submission does not negate a variety of roles. Mutual submission does not negate a variety of roles. While Paul points out that in Christ all are equal, he establishes that early in chapter 1 and re-emphasizes it in 2 and 3, even hits it again in chapter 4. We are one. There's one body. There's one Lord. We're all in this together and we are equal. Makes it very clear in Galatians, the same thing he's saying here in Ephesians. There's neither... Greek and Gentile, uh, Jew or or Gentile. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ. The point being that we come to Christ equally. We have equal footing. We have equal value. But he does not in any way uh, dismiss the distinctions between individuals in the midst of this mutual submission. And the equality of value does not, does not take away the variety of roles. He, does, he says we're all equal, but he does not say that we're all the same. And praise God for that, how boring it would be otherwise. There is no difference in value because we're all in the same boat as sinners saved by grace, chosen and adopted as God's own children. However, there remains meaningful distinction of persons and specifically assigned roles. Let's take a a quick look back at Ephesians chapter 4, just to see a brief picture of that. Look at, compare the difference here, the the connection between chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, where Paul says, There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The emphasis here, you might hear the repeated word, one. One. We are united. We are, this, we are, are in this equally. And yet we're not all the same. There are differences and distinctions between us. Notice what he says in verses 7 to 12. Verse 7. But, notice the contrast. Whenever you see a but, there's a contrast there, right? There's an apposition that takes place. One, 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 but to each one, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. 
But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. In other words, if I could borrow from my nephews, you get what you get and you don't throw a fit. Jesus gives you grace. This is not talking about your grace for your salvation. Okay, that's universal to anyone who comes. It's the same grace. You're a sinner, you're dead, he brings you to life. The difference here is the grace of gifting, which he's going to clarify in just a few moments here in a couple of verses. There's a difference in the gifting because God gives you a particular gift that he doesn't give to you, and he gives her a particular gift that he doesn't give to him, and he gives me a particular gift that he doesn't give to somebody else. And I don't get to make that decision. It's as Christ apportioned it. To each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Paul kind of flips the psalm there. What does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He went up because he had already come down. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers specific, distinctive roles. Jesus gave them, verse 12, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. I like this verse a lot. I was only supposed to read the previous one, but I like it. Till we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. We cannot attain that whole measure. <clears throat> we cannot become fully mature until we recognize that we are one and yet we are distinct we have roles and authorities given by Christ. Turn back to the left to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. <coughs> In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is writing to a church that is struggling to get along. They have a number of dysfunctions. We can't even get into all of it. But one of the areas that they're struggling is a lack of mutual submission. They're jealous of one another. Why does this person get to do that? And that person, you know, why can't I be up on stage? Why can't this person uh, handle the money? You know, why, why do you get to do this and I get to do that? And, you know, all this bickering and fighting and wishing that I could have somebody else's gifts. Paul says in verse 4, 1 Corinthians 12, 4, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Notice, it ain't for you. This is not in any way about you and stroking your ego and building your self-esteem. It's for the common good. When Christ gives you a gift to do a particular thing, <clears throat> which you may or may not have actually wanted to do prior to him giving you the gift and calling you to that, 
It is not so that you can sell books or get a popular podcast or be some prominent influencer. It's not so that you can make money. It's for the building up of his church. That is the purpose of every spiritual gift. <coughs> Pardon me. Jump ahead to verse 12. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we will, we're all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. It becomes increasingly important for us to recognize this in a world that seems to make it an individual only personal faith. Now, our faith is personal in that God has no grandchildren. You don't get in because your mama said so, right? You don't get to get into heaven because you came to real life and sat through unendurably long sermons. You don't get credit for that. You get into heaven because you know Jesus personally. But God deals with his people, always has, always will, both individually and corporately. His purpose is that his church would be a temple. And if you think that you can get along well as a foot detached from the body, try that physically and see how well it works. If you cut your foot off, your foot doesn't function. Your body may continue to function, but it ain't going to do so well. You're going to hobble a little. The same is true for us in our spiritual lives. I cannot function when I'm separated from the body. I will die. And the body will be crippled if I don't play the role God has given me to play, whatever that role might be. Maybe it's vacuuming the floors or serving in the nursery or folding the programs on Sunday mornings. Or maybe it's committing yourself to foreign missions or, or, or I don't know what your part is, but God does. And he brings it to your mind regularly, whether you're paying attention or not. The issue very often when we struggle with our place in the body is our willingness to submit. When we humble ourselves 
and choose to do just as Jesus did, being himself very God of very God. The Son submitted himself to the Father in obedience. And the Spirit submits himself in obedience. As we see the Trinity perfectly equal, co-equal, co-existent, co-eternal, and yet within himself, God has this picture of submission. How can we think that we are above it? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Mutual submission does not negate a variety of roles. The right relationship of authority and submission is essential to the Christian life because humility, the humility of mutual submission, undergirds the unity of the church. The right relationship of authority and submission is essential to the Christian life because the humility of mutual submission undergirds the unity of the church. He tells them, and God tells us, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Notice this. We are called to choose the same attitude as Jesus. Philippians 2.5, we saw. Your attitude, your mindset, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Who being in very nature God, chose to submit himself. We are called to choose the same attitude as Jesus. Notice the second point here. Disciples become increasingly like their master. Disciples become increasingly like their master. 1 John 2.6 tells us, Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Hopefully that rings a bell for some of you as a recent memory verse for us. 1 John 2.6, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. The goal of our discipleship, the goal of following Jesus, is to become more and more like Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul points out that it is our destiny. If you're in Christ, if you have received him by faith, check it out now. You can't fail. You can't lose. Because the score in the end has been predetermined. God has settled your future. If you are in Christ, it is your destiny to be perfectly conformed to the likeness of Christ. Along the way, we are progressing in our sanctification. We are becoming increasingly more like Him. Like a child learning to walk, we stumble. But the relationship doesn't end. Understand that God in Christ, by His Holy Spirit's presence in you, has settled your future. That you will become perfectly conformed to the likeness of Christ. And in the meantime, we become increasingly like the master that is the nature of discipleship 
A disciple is one who follows a teacher, imitating their life. We see the picture clearly portrayed in, in, uh, in Greek history, in the, the picture of the philosophers. Plato was a student of Socrates. He didn't just study Socrates' words. He imitated his life. Becoming more and more like the master, like the teacher, as, they, as he grew. The same is true for us as disciples of Christ. Jesus spent three years with the twelve. How many of you know by the end of that three years, they were not perfectly conformed to the likeness of Christ? That's why Peter ended up denying him. They had many stumbles, many struggles, but they were closer at the end than they were at the beginning, and today they are perfectly conformed to his likeness. You and I are still learning. We're still walking. Praise God, He's not finished with us yet. But a disciple always becomes increasingly like the Master. Notice this. Ambassadors reflect the character of the one that they represent. Ambassadors reflect the character of of the one they represent. I won't have you turn there for the sake of time, but 2 Corinthians 5.20 talks about the fact that we are Christ's ambassadors. We are an embassy. We are not citizens here. In fact, the Bible calls us strangers and aliens. We're travelers, sojourners, immigrants, if you will. But we are here on a mission to represent another kingdom. We are citizens of a new nation, a holy nation. Not an American nation or any other earthly temporal nation, but the kingdom of God. If you are in Christ, your primary citizenship is in heaven, in the kingdom of God. And you are here to represent him. It is an ambassador's job to display in themselves, in the way they conduct themselves, the words they speak, and the things they do, to reflect the character of the one they represent. As the church, as Christ's called out ones, we exist to reflect the reality of Christ through relationships. That means in every single relationship, the way we act, the way we handle authority and submission becomes a picture of Jesus. This is why Paul goes into some specifics about what that looks like, which we'll be diving into over the next three weeks. Understand this. The right relationship of authority and submission is essential to the Christian life because it is a reflection of the reality of Christ in his people. The right relationship of authority and submission is essential to the Christian life because it is a reflection of the reality of Christ in his people. Now, I want to close this without closing this with some questions, controversies, and conflicts. Some of you are probably wrestling with the, but what about this? And I've heard several questions come up recently about 
uh, as we've talked about any number of protests, both contemporary and historic, as we have worked through the idea of what it means to be a Christ follower in a secularizing world, questions like, well, is the very foundation, the very nature of the United States of America flawed because we were in rebellion against the authorities? Is it ever right to resist those in positions of authority? Maybe more to the point, is it ever wrong to submit to authority? Some of you have been through abusive relationships. And if you're a woman in a, in a situation of domestic abuse, and you hear a message that says, submit to your husband, we'll talk about that next week, that can be a very nightmarish perspective. I want to submit to you that it is never wrong to submit to rightful authority. But we need to recognize what rightful authority is. A husband who is abusive has forfeited his authority. He is not operating on behalf of the kingdom that he is there to represent. The husband's job, as we will see next week, is to be a picture of Christ. When he forfeits that authority, you are not called to submit to that which goes against the will and character of God. Details to follow. What about a government? There's a great difference between the government that we know in most of Western society, but specifically here in the United States, where you and I actually are the government. We actually get to choose our leaders. That's not been the case for most societies and most of history. So the dynamic is a little bit different. And again, it is never wrong to submit to rightful authority. But we need to recognize that there is always, in every situation, a hierarchy. Many of you here in this room are veterans. If not, you probably understand the basic idea of a chain of command. I must obey the lawful orders of someone in that chain of command. If someone is outside of that chain of command, somebody tell me if I need to obey that order. What do you think? Some civilian on the street comes up and gives me an order? Psh, you ain't nobody. I'll be polite because I represent something. I'll be kind. But you have no authority to command the troops. You're outside of the chain of command. Moreover, a command from a, a, a private. If I am a private and I get a command, I'm a, I was in the Air Force, so I'd be an airman, but if I get a command from another private, I need to weigh that against the orders that we have received. 
and the will of our commander. If we have a mission, and what that peer tells me fits the mission, then I submit to that willingly and rightly. If it goes against the spirit and will of the overarching command, I do not, I dare not submit to that. It is outside of the chain of command. If I get an order from a junior non-commissioned officer who outranks me, I'm bound to obey that, given if it's a, providing it's a legal command, a lawful command. But if I get a conflicting order from a higher-ranking person, senior NCO, officer, guess which one I follow? Follow the higher authority. So it is wrong to submit to anyone who claims authority, even one who has a rightful position of authority, if they are wielding it outside of the chain of command. If it goes against what God says, I don't do it. Acts 5.5, 5, it's better for me to obey God than to obey man. That's the call. Follow the chain of command. Follow the line of authority. We'll see details of this come up in the next three weeks as we put some specifics on it. So there are times when submitting to rightful authority can look like resisting authority because the one we're resisting is not in authority. We have to be very careful, however. I have to be very, this is my public confession, I have to be very careful that my American pride, my human pride, my, my occasionally slightly libertarian leanings don't cause me to be prideful and rebel because you can't tell me what to do. You're not the boss of me. I get to do what I want. In the same way, when I wield authority, it is always the wrong thing for me to wield that authority as if it is about me. And my pride gets in the way. Notice the chain. Humility is the mindset. Submission is a decision. Obedience is the action that follows. Last thought, how, how can I know whether to stand down or stand up? We're called to meekness. We're called to humility. We're called to this attitude of mutual submission. Within distinctive roles, right, we're still called to submit to various authorities, even as we are, even as we are equal in status. I think of Paul's letter to Philemon, who's a slave owner, and he's talking to him about this uh, runaway slave, Onesimus, who has gotten saved. And he speaks to Philemon as a slave owner about the slave who is now equal with you, your brother, and yet still a slave under his authority. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around it. But this is the attitude that we have to recognize. How do I know whether I should stand down or stand up? Go back. Let me just have you turn to Philippians chapter 2 since it's not far away. We've read it already. We'll finish with this. 
We sang earlier about our returning king, who is the lion and the lamb. I'm going to finish with this thought. I am going to have you look at one more, uh, one more scripture. We'll be in uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 5, just to give you a heads up if you want to cheat. In Philippians 2, we see this picture of Christ. Notice that there is a standing down, a submission, and then there is also the exaltation that takes place here. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, verse 6, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Submission. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and excuse me, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Notice the script flips here. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, submission to authority. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord is Master, Ruler, Sovereign. He stood down until it was time to stand up. All of this happens to the glory of God the Father. Turn to Revelation 5. Last book of the Bible. Makes it a little easier to find. Revelation 5. We'll look specifically at verses 5 and 6 in this passage about uh, John's vision of the scroll and his weeping because no one is worthy to open the scroll to discern the revelation. And as he wept about that, we see uh, verse 5, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. I'll just stop for just a moment. The picture that you have in your mind right now of a lion is probably not the same as a house cat that sits on your lap and purrs. Now, cats are pretty bossy a lot of the time, but you get the picture anyway. This lion, the nature of a lion is majestic and powerful. King of the jungle, if you will. Verse 5, <clears throat> excuse me. I lost it, here we go. <clears throat> One of the elders said to me, Do not weep, see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. Victorious warrior language. The lion has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. But notice verse 6. The lion, when he looks, when he sees the lion, what he sees instead, I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. This Lamb is the picture of the sacrifice, looking as if it had been slain. We know that this is Christ by his scars. This is a powerful reality that Jesus 
the victorious lion wins that victory for us through being slain in our place. But he's not done. He continues. It's encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns representing strength, perfection of strength and power, and seven eyes, the perfection of wisdom and knowledge, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Jesus Christ is the lion and the lamb. He is the prince of peace who rules with an iron scepter, yet is meek and lowly of heart. We see Jesus stand before his accusers silently. We see him repeatedly wronged. We see him also overturn the tables in the temple in defense of the honor of God. We see him stand up for the downtrodden. How do I know whether to stand down or stand up? First off, study God's word. Second, listen to the spirit of God. Third, reflect the character of God. As you apply what you learn in the word, and what the Spirit is guiding you in the convictions of your heart, that which is righteous is righteous. Do not allow self or pride to drive you when you stand up for the rights of others in the name of the Lord and He gets the honor. It's a good thing. When you get your back up because you don't want somebody telling you what to do, you're in the wrong place. That's difficult for us to discern. We get better as we walk with him and become more like him. I'm going to close for today, and we'll pick up the details in the rest of the passage over the next three weeks. Let's, let's pray. Lord, it is hard for us to wrap our minds around this sometimes, not because it's so complicated and difficult to understand but because our hearts are stained and hard and difficult to apply so Lord we pray that you would move in us that you would soften our hearts cause us to be responsive to you to first and foremost submit to your perfect authority and in every way as we learn to submit to one another Father, teach us to do so specifically out of reverence for Christ. Never, never let us, Lord, submit out of fear of man. But always, always, because you are the judge of all of us. And you judge perfectly. Help us to stand with clean consciences before you as we are guided by your spirit and your word, recognizing that our failures have been already redeemed by the blood of your son on the cross. 
And that when we die with him by faith, we are raised to a new life in him. Help us to walk in it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand, please. I'm yours, Lord. Everything I've got. Everything I am. Everything I'm not. I'm yours, Lord. Try me now and see. See if I can be completely yours. I'm yours, Lord. Everything I've got. Everything I am. Everything I'm not. I'm